unmistakable and beautiful voice of the Barnsley folk singer Kate Rusby and she's accompanied and supported in the song there by the legendary Richard Thompson. The song is called Who Will Sing Me Lullabies and was written by Kate after the death of her favourite Uncle Davy. I'd like to start this podcast by reading three poems from widows around society's reactions to their grief. First one is by a lady called Elizabeth Jennings, and is simply called Words About Grief. Time does not heal. It makes a half-stitched scar that can be broken, and you feel grief as total as in its first hour. The second is by Anne Kind, called Society's Demands. When the first pain is unleashed, it is acceptable to show it. At first, unbelief, then comes name-calling and hearing a key turning. After seven years, it's best not to mention it. It's the way forward, they say. It's a fine line of decorum. Then it was, time heals. Life must go on. Don't cry. Pull yourself together. Like a sack of ashes? The calling has stopped. The key no longer tries the lock. Society's demands have been met. The third is from a lady called Pam Gillelan, When You Died. When you died, I went through the rain, carrying my nightmare to register the death. A well-groomed, healthy gentleman, safe within his office, said, Are you the widow? Couldn't he just have said, Were you his wife? 
These three poems come from an excellent collection of contemporary poems on bereavement and grief. It's called The Long Pale Corridor, published by the quirkily named Blood Axe Books, edited by Judy Benson and Agnita Falk, and well worth a bit of a dip in and dip out book. Hello, my name is Neil Campbell, and I'm a grief specialist, counselling, training, supervision and research, based in Gateshead, Newcastle in the North East. I've been a counsellor and trainer now for over 26 years and for more than two decades specialising in grief, particularly around bereavement by suicide, bereavement in the womb at birth, supporting the midlife orphan and anticipatory grief, and working with both bereaved adults and children, and accruing in the process more than 15,500 client hours, nearly 2,000 hours of supervising bereavement counsellors and over 120 delivered training courses around bereavement and grief issues. Now I say that not for an ego trip, but in support of the evidence-based label, the evidence-based tag that I'm going to give this podcast and the work that I carry out both in counselling, training and supervision. Evidence-based appears to be a bit of a buzzword at the moment, particularly for practitioners and trainers. But my work and my views and my beliefs and approaches and even core contents are very much evidence-based. Based on the evidence of literally hundreds and hundreds of clients. It's one of the great benefits of growing old, gaining knowledge by experience. For as the editors Class Silverman and Nickman state in their book Continuing Bonds, new understandings of grief, quote, we need to bring into our professional dialogue the reality of how people experience and live their lives, rather than finding ways of verifying preconceived theories of how people should live. So, a warm welcome to the first of a series of podcasts from the Campbell Grief Institute that focuses on some of the more complex and often under-acknowledged and ignored areas and issues around bereavement and grief. Now, before I start the podcast itself, I perhaps need to explain why I'm offering this series for anyone that's working with and supporting the bereaved. I believe, and I believe passionately, and as a practicing supervisor, that whatever our role is with the bereaved, be it counselling, therapy, guidance, coaching, or just simple support and listening. We have a threefold duty towards both our clients and our own practice. The first duty is to consistently and regularly develop, enhance, hone and monitor those interpersonal skills that are so key to establishing good, caring, trusting relationships with our clients. Whether that be through self-reflection, practice, if we can get it, supervision, peer supervision, or going back and doing some basic refresher training. If we are not careful, we can take our listening skills and those basic core counselling skills for granted and neglect them. It's no bad thing to get back to basics from time to time, no matter how long you've been a practitioner. The second duty, I believe, is to consistently and regularly monitor 
our self-awareness, particularly in this area of grief. Being aware of and acknowledging those idiosyncratic blind spots and triggers that can, with this type of work, tap into our personal loss histories and grief reservoirs. It's so important in our work with the bereaved and as wounded and scarred human beings, it's a constant challenge for us. This is where I feel personal learning journals, approached with honesty, frankness and humility, can be so valuable and so rewarding. And good experience supervision will help us learn much around those issues that influence our work or can influence our work, such as transference, counter-transference and the parallel process. The third, and perhaps less obvious duty, but I think the most important, is to consistently and regularly accrue and enhance our working knowledge of grief. To learn, not just with the grief experience and grief in general, but also with those different types of bereavement and the more complex areas of grief that possess their own subtle and influential emotional nuances and dynamics. For example, the anticipatory grief experience, being a midlife orphan, bereavement through homicide, bereavement through suicide, the gender differences of grieving parents, bereavement through the death of one's mother, cultural and spiritual influences, the death of a spouse or partner, grief in the aftermath of disasters, bereavement in the womb or at birth, and today's subject, secondary hurts and injuries. It's about reading around and immersing ourselves in the academic and evidential aspects and strands of these various types of bereavement and grief. It's almost like engaging in a type of thanatology. For the more we learn, the more we know. The more we know, the more we can empathise. The more we can empathise, the richer our presence. And the richer our presence, the greater the gift that we can offer to our clients. So I hope that this series of podcasts will make some kind of small contribution to that third duty I've just mentioned. Contributions that hopefully will add to one's knowledge and therefore perhaps enhance both the ability to empathise and the richness of one's presence. Now several of the anecdotal stories you will hear in this podcast have come from both friends and former clients. And with regard to both friends and clients, I have received their permission for the anecdotes to be used for training purposes and for educating those working on a regular basis with the bereaved. Obviously, the names of the clients have been changed. This particular podcast is around secondary hurts and injuries and the grief triangulation theory. I have long felt, and I have to say it's a personal view, that today's society, both in the United Kingdom and in the West in large, is somewhat unkind towards and impatient with bereaved people. Not knowingly or deliberately, I think, but more from thoughtlessness, fear, impatience and intolerance. Our society is currently an instant society, an immediate and now society, on the whole, selfish, 
and largely me-focused. It's certainly success-orientated, and it's obsessed with solutions. Solutions to any and all problems that rear their unwelcome heads. If there's a problem, we must find a solution. And it seems as if society has been developing for the last 60 or 70 years to meet its current needs. And perhaps our approach to grief as a society, literally augmented by the models and theories that start from Eric Lindemann just after the Second World War and the Reverend Granger Westberg and all those coming forward now to 2020, perhaps this approach to grief has been developing in similar fashion in order to meet society's instant current needs with regards to bereavement and grief. So what happens then when a relative friend or colleague loses a loved one? Well, society heads for the shops, for a sympathy card, to and from, and then posts it. I remember talking to a widow last year over a cup of tea during a community outing from Fellingengate said, to Annette Gardens. She told me about her husband and in particular that when her husband died she received 92 sympathy cards. In the end she kept only three and threw the rest of the way. The three that she kept included 200 tributes to her husband on the inside left hand page of the card and the third card came with a touching handwritten letter enclosed again another tribute to her late husband. The rest simply contained a name at the top and the sender's names at the bottom and in her words all blurred into one. So then society arranges for flowers to be sent to the bereaved family via the local interflora. Phone calls are made and exchanged. Texts and emails are sent. Then attendance at the funeral. Then lots of meaningful promises and pledges are made for future support. Are all of these really for the benefit of the bereaved? Or is it for society discharging its perceived duty? And then three to four months later, an invisible guillotine appears in order to cut short this societal sanctioned grieving period. The initial support and contact and thoughtfulness in the main starts to fade. And society, through relatives, friends, neighbours, colleagues and employers, wants to breathe back on track, or back to some form of normality, whatever that may be in the circumstances. So when faced with prolonged, open, demonstrable and distressing grief, society has a problem it doesn't like, and it doesn't like talking about, and it initially struggles to deal with it. It looks for solutions. And so the breed will hear those trite and unsubtle comments. Time will heal. You'll get over it in time. Surely it's time to move on. You have to let go and move forward. You really do need to let go. Best not to talk about it. Then they're advised to focus on resolution and reinvesting and completion. And then to reinforce those solutions, society uses lots of shoulds, musts, oughts, have-tos, need-tos, and if the problem persists, society then attaches a label, such as unhealthy, stuck, pathological, chronic, 
or society can simply avoid the bereaved, cross the road to the other side, walk away, walk the other way, change the subject, talk about their own experience, talk about others' grief experiences in comparison, tell them not to cry or talk about it, lose patience with them, stop listening to them, cliches, platitudes, hackneyed phrases. Secondary hurts and injuries, society's thoughtless acts and behaviours, society's inappropriate words, phrases and language around grief, things said and things done, things not said and things not done, seemingly helpful comments and suggestions that cause as much pain, anguish and distress as the actual grief for the loss of a close loved one. So it's almost as if for the bereaved they face pain, anguish and distress coming from two directions. And it can be sometimes that these secondary hurts and injuries actually act as the catalyst, the trigger that finally propels bereaved individuals to decide to seek help, whether through counselling, therapy, coaching, simple listening. I've got three tales to tell you which are excellent illustrations around these secondary hurts and injuries. About six years ago, I started working with a client, we'll call her Susan, who came to counselling eight months after the suicide of her husband. She had three, she still has of course, three children who at the time were 16, 10 and 13 months. Her husband had hung himself in the family home while Susan and the children were visiting her mother and staying there overnight. During the counselling and nearly 13 months after her husband's death, Susan came into a session in a very agitated and emotional state, seemingly at odds with the way she'd been engaging with the previous two or three sessions. Two weeks before this particular session, her late husband's family had invited her to come out with them socially for a couple of drinks at the local social club in their village. She was extremely undecided and very troubled when first asked, and we explored all of her concerns and misgivings in the previous session. She had never been out anywhere, save for shopping or taking the children to school since her husband died, and was extremely nervous about going out. In the end, with a great deal of encouragement and reassurances from her in-laws, she agreed, and her mother came across to mind the children for a few hours while she went out. She'd always got on well with her husband's family, and they'd been quite supportive and caring since then. In the end, she went, had a couple of glasses of wine, chatted about everyday and inconsequential stuff, found herself smiling occasionally at the kindness from those present around the table, and even laughed at a couple of outrageous jokes from one of her brothers-in-law. But for her the evening, though pleasant, was still set against a backdrop of heavy sadness. But that's not the end of the story, for in the following week gossip spread round the village, literally like wildfire. Her mother overheard at the post office, her eldest daughter heard it in the school, and even her husband's family got to hear snippets. The Merry Widow not taken too long to get going again, laughing and carrying on as if nothing has happened. No smoke without fire. Makes you wonder what really happened. 
and in the second tale. Last year, I received a very tearful phone call from a friend and former work colleague from my days at Northumbria University in Newcastle city centre. Her name's Carol. Could we meet for lunch sometime soon, she asked. I really need your take on a most upsetting incident that happened last week, and I just can't bring myself to talk about it over the phone. And so two days later we met for lunch. At the time, it had been 16 months since Carol lost her mother, who had died suddenly at the age of 74 from a massive heart attack. And here she was, still struggling desperately with the loss, and by her own admission, prone to bursting into tears without warning, at home, when she was out with her friends, or even at work. And her mother was not just a devoted mother, but also Carol's best friend. Every Saturday they would go shopping around Newcastle city centre for some retail therapy, but always finishing with afternoon tea at Fenwick's department store. As for the experience, well, one lunchtime in the previous week, Carol had popped out to do some food shopping at Marks and Spencer's, and was on her way back to her office on the university city campus. She just passed the city hall and was approaching the building which housed her office. Ahead of her, in the distance and walking towards her, on the same pavement, were two colleagues from her department's main office. As well as working with them on several joint projects, she'd attended conferences with them, and had even socialised with them outside of work, and indeed one of them had even met up with Carol and her mother on a couple of occasions. It was clear to Carol, as she drew closer to them, that they'd seen her, and she just knew they'd seen her. And then, suddenly... As they got even closer, they crossed the road to the other side. Carol stopped abruptly, dropping her carrier bags to the pavement as she did so, shocked at her colleague's behaviour. And as she did so, she looked across at them, trying to catch their eyes, trying to catch their attention. But they appeared to be almost too theatrically engaged in their conversation, avoiding any glances to the right or left. It was clear Carol had been extremely hurt by their action. The word Carol used was cruel. On her reaching her office, she spent much of the next hour in tears and was eventually sent home by a manager for the rest of the afternoon. She was still very emotional as she retold the tale to me over lunch. She hadn't spoken to these colleagues since then and had deleted them from her contact address book and from her mobile phone. Now, it wasn't as if her colleagues had developed a dislike for her, I told her. They most likely didn't do what they did deliberately. But as they and others were aware of Carol's struggles, long after society's official grief timeline, I believe that they were scared of greeting Carol and panicking about how she would respond if they asked her how she was. If she'd answered struggling or distraught or tearful instead of the expected OK or fine, what would they have done? What would they have needed to have said? So instead, they avoided and caused even more distress for Carol. Cruel and thoughtless. And a classic example of a secondary hurt and injury. Not just in what they did, crossed the road to the other side and ignored Carol, but what they didn't do. Even if they were uncomfortable or embarrassed and fearful what Carol might have said to them, their simple presence for a few minutes, a hug, 
a hand gently on her arm, even an embarrassed, I don't know what to say, but can I do anything at the moment? That would have been, any of them, would have been a well-received gift. And the third story comes from my time as Director of Counselling and Training for Crew's Bereavement Care in Newcastle and Gateshead. I worked alongside a wonderful man called Trevor, who was a minister in the United Reformed Church, was a chaplain at the RVI Hospital in Newcastle, and a qualified bereavement counsellor and counselling supervisor. And he had built up a wealth of knowledge and experience around bereavement and grief, and I learned an incredible amount from him. During one of our regular coastal walks that we engaged in every month, during which we obviously tried to sort out the world's problems and discover the meaning of life at the same time, Trevor told me about a recent funeral he'd had to conduct in his church. It had been for a young girl aged 13 and who'd been killed while crossing a busy main road. She was the eldest of her parents' four children. It was a particularly difficult service for Trevor and everyone involved for he recalled the huge emotional intensity that seemed to pervade, during the, pervade the church during the funeral, as the church was filled not just with the families and friends of the bereaved parents, but also with all of the deceased daughter's classmates and their families. After the service, the bereaved family and close mourners retired to the home of the bereaved mother's sister for a post-funeral tea, once seen as an essential and important part of our traditional rites of passage. During the tea, Trevor spent much of the time talking to the brief parents or staying close to them for emotional support. Then two incidents occurred that really affected Trevor. The first involved an endless succession of mourners turning to the brief father and making such comments as, you've got to be strong now for the family. You'll need to be strong, Paul, in the weeks ahead for both Mary and the other children. You've got to be there and strong for Mary now. And it got to a point where the bereaved father turned to Trevor and remarked sadly and almost in a pleading way, That's all very well, Trevor, but who on earth is going to be strong and there for me? The second incident, and by far the worst, involved two elderly relatives who approached the bereaved parents in order to pay their respects. And however, to Trevor's horror and the obvious distress of the parents, the first aunt said, Well, Mary, at least you still have the other three. And the second aunt then added, in an even more thoughtless manner, Well, you two, you're still young enough. Give it another month or so and you can start trying for another. And off they went to reload at the buffet table, clearly oblivious to the anger and distress they'd caused. I did ask Gordon what was his immediate reaction at the time, and he said, I think I wanted to slap them, both of those ants. And I said, oh, that would have looked good in the local evening paper. Minister slaps mourners at post-funeral tea. Needless to say, he didn't slap them. But these two are classic examples of secondary hurts and injuries. The silly, stupid and thoughtless things that people say to the breed the silly, stupid and thoughtless things that people do towards the breed, the trite and trivial, allegedly helpful advice that people offer to the breed in the absence of anything else. Every now and again, I find a really, really terrific book 
on an aspect of bereavement and grief and it stays with me in my collection of books that I carry from both home to office and if I'm going away on a training courses. Very influential. And these next extracts to add to the flavour of these secondary hurts and injuries comes from a wonderful book called What Forever Means After the Death of a Child, written by Kay Talbot, who lost her own young daughter to a terminal illness. It is a, an amazing book. It reads sometimes like a PhD thesis, but there are so many wonderful extracts from some of the brief parents that she interviewed. This is an extract from Fran, who lost her son David, aged 19, from brainstem damage. And she talked of the additional trauma of being confronted by the hospital's unsympathetic social worker. And I quote, She shouldn't even be in the profession at all, because when she first saw us, she took us into this little room, and she said now her name is, oh, and I can't even remember what her name is now. And she said, I'll be your social worker, and I'll be talking to you every week about David, and we'll have meetings with the doctors and the therapists and all that. And then she said, first of all, I'm going to tell you something. She said, David is dead. And I said, what? And then she said, David is dead. And she went on to add, the David that you know and the David that you knew will never be again. And I just wanted to absolutely hit her. I mean, it was so cold. And this is from Ellen after her son's death. And this is about Ellen's friends. Quote, I had five what I considered really, really good friends down home. And I thought, they are just going to rally round. But after the funeral was over, so was their help and closeness. This has really stuck with me. And even after numerous letters, they still never contact me. So I gave up on them. And I have been so angry at them ever since. And this comes in the same book from Anita, after the death of her son Brad. I quote, When I try to talk about Brad with my friends, it's just like they've been struck by an ice cube or something. They just get all cold and stiff and I get, why are you talking about him? And they don't know what to say back. And so I don't speak about him very much or very often or for a very long amount of time. And that hurts. And I didn't like that. He was and is a part of my life and he always will be. And from the same book, in her study of death of a parent or a spouse or a child in 1999, C.M. Saunders found that parental bereavement produced the greatest feelings of isolation and stigma. One mother compared it to being a leper without a colony. Several spoke of walking down the street and seeing friends a distance away actually cross the street to avoid having to speak to them. Yet some of these parents would hesitate to mention these incidents for fear of sounding unduly paranoid. And in her book, Unspeakable Losses, Kim Kluger-Bell lists some of the awful things or unhelpful things that people say to 
bereaved parents that have lost a child in the womb or at birth. It was God's will. I'm sure it was for the best. A blessing in disguise. You can always try for another. At least you weren't too far along. You'll see your baby in heaven again. You wouldn't want the baby to be deformed. Well, at least it wasn't a real baby. Well, it wasn't meant to be. Why did you bother giving him a name? I suppose at this juncture it's a trifle strange to try and explain a theory that relies on the visual, but here goes, and I'm talking now about the grief triangulation theory based on these secondary hurts and injuries. I want you to imagine an equilateral triangle in front of you. At the left-hand angle point is a B, at that left-hand point, for both the bereavement and the bereaved individual. And at the top angle is an S for society. And there is an arrow pointing up the slope from point B to point S, and this represents grief's symptomatology. All of the feelings, emotions and reactions following the death and how it's expressed by the bereaved individual. And there is an arrow pointing back down from point S towards point B, and this represents society's reactions and responses to the bereaved person's grief in those early months after the bereavement. But then time moves on. And so now at the right angle point of the triangle is B2. And this represents the bereaved individual again, but some time, quite a few months, or even a year or so after those initial months post bereavement. There's an arrow pointing from B2 towards S, and again, this represents grief symptomatology and how it is still being expressed by the bereaved individual long after those immediate post-bereavement months. There is an arrow pointing back down from point S to point B2, and this represents society's reactions and responses to the bereaved person's continued grief symptomatology. And it is this interaction between point S and point B2 that produces and encompasses all of those secondary hurts and injuries. And finally, along the base of the triangle between point B and B2 is grief, unique, idiosyncratic and lifelong. And it is possible for bereaved, some bereaved people to repeat this triangular activity several times over and over again. And I believe that many bereaved clients finally decide to engage with counselling or therapy or coaching or whatever when they've reached point B2. When no one else is prepared to listen anymore, even family members. When few appear to care and even less phone or text. When colleagues and neighbours avoid, cross the road or reverse their steps. When people change the subject or respond with hackneyed comments when society continues to offer its well-practiced but thoughtless advice, when even family members want to forget when the bereaved want to remember. I remember one client who had lost a young son who died at the age of 12 from a terminal illness. She came into counselling just after the second anniversary of her son's death. As the family approached the second anniversary, she wanted to honour her son's death and life with a family visit to the cemetery, a special remembrance family meal, and the planting of a special rosebush in the garden. Her husband, on the other hand, 
wanted to take the family on a tourist and shopping weekend break to London in order to escape the sadness and memories. And another client, who had lost her husband, came into counselling a year and a half after her husband's death. The catalyst was when the group of married couples, with whom she and her late husband socialised regularly, suddenly stopped inviting her to the bi-monthly dinners that the group held at each other's houses. For practitioners, in whatever guise you work within bereavement grief, it is so important to be aware of the significant impact of those secondary hurts and injuries on the bereaved. As painful and as distressing quite often as the actual grief itself for the loss of the loved one. Society's unhelpful platitudes, pat answers, pious cliches and welcome advice and thoughtless behaviours can and will cause as much distress as the actual loss of a close loved one. As I said before, it's as if the bereaved have to face sadness and hurt and pain from two directions. And it's also important to understand how these secondary hurts and injuries can act as the catalyst for the bereaved individual to finally decide to enter into counselling or therapy or coaching or guidance or just listening. A thoughtless act, a thoughtless bit of behaviour, yet another piece of unwanted and helpful advice, one more meaningless platitude, and they may well be the experience that finally makes their mind up. Grief is lifelong, and there is no getting over it. It is about adjusting and adapting to the loss, still going on to lead meaningful and productive lives, but at the same time still missing, remembering and grieving the lost loved ones in the years ahead. Not necessarily every day or every week, for those in-between times will get longer. So we as practitioners, we cannot give the bereaved what they most want, which is the return of their loved one. We cannot and should not try to ease or take away the pain of grief. As Al Hugh said in his book Grieving a Suicide in 2002, we don't need the pain to be minimised. We want others to be willing to be with us in our pain and grief. It is a unique and very personal experience which the bereaved will go through when they are ready to and at a pace and in a timeline of their choice. One of my previous supervisors was a lady called Dr Cathy Hunt. I had the privilege of being one of her supervisees for three years before she moved to Australia. She was a senior member of BACP, one of the two professional bodies for counselling, the other one being the NCS, um, two professional bodies in the country for counselling and uh, therapists, higher education counselling lecturer, highly regarded and an expert in working with bereaved children and she really did merit the title of expert. I was indeed most fortunate to receive training from her outside of our normal supervision sessions around counselling bereaved children and young people. I mentioned Dr Hunt here because I remember jotting down a quote from her in one of our sessions. We must respect the innate wisdom of each and every bereaved individual to grieve in a way that is right for them. It is right for them because it is their way. It is therefore right because it is their way. For practitioners, 
working with bereaved clients can be scary. And even after more than two decades, I still experience fear and helplessness in my work. We will often feel powerless and impotent in the face of grief, and there is little in the way of boundaries between us and the person sitting opposite, for we are both mortal humans, wounded and scarred, and each with our own lost lifeline. But as Sheila Cassidy said, slowly as the years go by, I learn about the importance of powerlessness. I experience it in my own life, and I live with it in my own work. The secret is not to be afraid of it, not to run away. All they, the bereaved, all they ask is that we do not desert them, that we stand our ground. And at this stage of the journey of being there, of simply being, it is in many ways the hardest part. So what is so vital is to be there, being there, our simple and humble presence. The richness and value of that simple and humble presence and the commitment and preparedness to share the darkness, hurt and pain, knowing there will be a cost for us too, a commitment which is the cornerstone of true compassion. True compassion, a compassion that embraces competence, presence and powerlessness altogether. I love that invite from Nicholas Walterstoff in his work Lament for a Son in 1987, where he said, Come, sit beside me on my morning bench. As well as being there and joining our clients on their morning bench, we can also proactively work with our clients in addressing and working with those secondary hurts and injuries to help the bereaved deal with society's impatience and unkindness to help our bereaved clients find appropriate coping strategies with regard to society's responses and reactions, to enable our clients to remember and reminisce, to remember those they have loved, to ignore society's plea to let go, to recognise that remembering their deceased loved ones is actually to choose their ongoing companionship, and to help instil the confidence and the determination in our clients to grieve in their way, the right way, and to hell with the rest of society. Thank you for listening. And when we come back for the next podcast, it will be around bibliotherapy and bereaved young people and children. Bye for now.